so Ephesians 5, this is uh, one of the classic texts. Um, And I just want to begin by reading a portion of an article that appeared in the New York Times uh, within the last 10 days or so. And it's titled, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person, right? So this is a a good cultural commentary on uh, just what people view marriage as, like what are the high points, what are the low points. So just listen and see if you can identify with our culture's view of marriage. It says, It's one of the things that we're most afraid that might happen to us. We go to great lengths to avoid it, and yet we do it all the same. We marry the wrong person. Partly because we have a bewildering array of problems that emerge when we try to get close to others. We seem normal only to those who don't know us very well. In a wiser, more self-aware society than our own, a standard question on an early dinner date would be, and I would add should be, and how are you crazy? The problem is that before marriage, we rarely delve into our complexities. Whenever casual relationships threaten to reveal our flaws, we blame our partners and we call it a day. As for our friends, they don't care enough really to do the hard work of enlightening us. One of the privileges of being on our own is therefore the sincere impression that we are actually quite easy to live with. We make mistakes too because we're so lonely. No one can be in an optimal frame of mind to choose a partner when remaining single feels unbearable. We have to be wholly at peace with the prospect of many years of solitude in order to be appropriately picky. Otherwise, we risk loving no longer being single more than we love the partner who spared us that fate. Well, the good news is that it doesn't matter if we married the wrong person. We mustn't abandon him or her only The founding romantic idea upon which Western understanding of marriage has been raised in the last 250 years, and this is what's gone wrong with marriage, that a perfect being exists who can meet all of our needs and satisfy our every yearning. We need to swap the romantic view for a tragic and at points comedic awareness that every human will frustrate Anger, annoy, madden, and disappoint us. And we will, without any malice, do the same to them. There can be no end to our sense of emptiness and incompleteness. But none of this is unusual or grounds for divorce. Choosing whom to commit ourselves to is merely a case of identifying which particular variety of suffering we would most like to sacrifice ourselves for. He concludes with this. The person who is best suited to us is not the person who shares our every taste. He or she does not exist. But the person who can negotiate differences in taste intelligently, the person who is good at disagreement, and this is the important phrase, compatibility is an achievement of love. It must not be its precondition. So, this article 
is very adept at identifying some of the underlying problems of marriage, but it doesn't offer any hope. The underlying assumption of this article is that we all just need to lower our expectations. And actually, that's the line that I use to get my wife. So it does work from time to time. But yeah, like the culture is able to identify like there's something wrong with marriage, right? And it all traces itself back to what we all call the Jerry Maguire principle, right? That there's another person out there that completes me, that can fulfill all of my needs, And the truth is, if you've been in a relationship for any amount of time, when you put that kind of weight on a relationship, it's that kind of weight that's really reserved for God alone, right? I mean, it will absolutely crush the relationship. The person that you think that can absolutely fulfill all of your needs and you idolize, eventually you will demonize, right? And so that's the source of a lot of the conflict that exists in marriage is we expect our spouse or the person we're in a relationship with to be able to meet the needs that are reserved for God alone, right? So it causes fights and it causes quarrels and it causes conflict. And what I love about this is it doesn't gloss over um, what every married couple knows, that, that marriage can be hard, that it can be difficult, right? That's why every romantic comedy, like if you watch it, it's all about the chase. It's all about the pursuit. It's all about what does it mean to end up together because the assumption is that once you end up together, right, I mean, you're going to be just like Cinderella and it's going to be happily ever after. I do believe happily ever after is possible, but happily ever after comes through a lot of peaks and valleys, right? So the the main idea of this particular article that we read is that compatibility is an achievement of love. Like being able to be compatible with someone is not just a product of natural selection. It's the fruit of loving one another, right? So the the idea that we're going to see from a gospel perspective is the way that God brings two people together through the power of his Holy Spirit and through the gospel is what makes people compatible. It's not that you have, as Dr. Neil Clark Warren says, 101 degrees of compatibility. That's not what makes people compatible. It's love, and in particular, love that's produced by seeing the mercy of Jesus that makes anyone compatible on this planet. That's what we're going to look at in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles open, would you stand with me as we read Ephesians 5. We're going to read verses 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and, him, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." 
because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, from the outset, as we read those words, we say we're not adequate. We don't have the gift mix. We don't have the wisdom and skill uh, in marriage to be able to live out this reality. But that's why I'm thankful that you didn't leave us alone. You gave us a Savior. You give us your Spirit. You endure with us when we are unbearable. I pray that in a real way that you would meet each person and each couple where they are, um, that we would see your love and experience your love more clearly. I pray that it would be personal and specific. To do that, we need you to send the Spirit. Apart from you, we can do absolutely nothing. But you love to give the Spirit to those who ask, so we humbly ask as your children, Show us your glory, show us your mercy, show us your power, and may the effect be for this community and for the world. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we just jump into this text, I want you to know how I'm approaching it this morning. I'm not here to say everything that could possibly be said about Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. I mean, there are whole books and whole volumes on that. My prayer is to be able to uncover the kernel of truth that's here and so that it would meet you where we are, right? I mean, this message is not for the world. It's for this church. It's for where we live life together. It's for where we struggle so that grace becomes real and personal, right? So that's, that's my goal. And my prayer, first and foremost, is that every person in this room, single or married, would catch a vision of God's vision and passion for marriage, God is the most passionate person in the universe about marriage in general. And if you are a married couple here this morning, he is the most passionate person about your marriage. And so he's here this morning to reveal himself in all of his power, in all of his mercy, in all of his grace and glory for you. But it's not just for you. It's so that the world can see through a picture of your marriage, his mercy and grace to the world. Right? So that's, that's what God wants us to see. So even if you're not married here this morning, there's, there's something about marriage that proclaims a mystery that just demonstrates to the world the mercy and the grace of Jesus. So we want to see that. But I also want you to know that there's, there's real power that's available here this morning. Right? If you are a married couple and you have downshifted into a business partner relationship where you just do one thing and your spouse does the other, that there's real power to come in where you are and meet you and change you as you see Jesus. Right? I mean, because if this was just theoretical, um, like I'd rather go home. Right? This, is, this is real power for real people in real marriages with real problems to experience the grace and the mercy of Jesus. Right, So 
this is for us to experience power, um, and it also is to overcome cynicism, right? Cynicism, unfortunately, is the, it really is the flavor of our age, and maybe nowhere more than in marriage are people growing more and more cynical. I mean, if you're married, you can be cynical towards your spouse, believing that they're always going to believe that they're always going to be that particular way, right? You can grow cynical towards them. Um, honestly, many of us are cynical because we've been hurt, like either in our marriages or we've seen marriages around us fall apart, right? Um, if you're single here, I mean, you've seen sometimes marriage be portrayed as this ultimate thing, and so you, you feel like there's no place for you inside the church, and marriage becomes another wall of hostility that people put up that separates people. My prayer for, <laughs> if you're here this morning and you're single, is that this wouldn't be something that would just say, I don't have a place in all of this, but that you would be able in a real way to experience God's love for the church very personally and very specifically, whether you're single or married, right? And, and it's our passion as a church that it doesn't matter if you're married or single, that there is room for you here, right? There are no second-class citizens. And I think that's, a, that's probably an area that we could grow, honestly, as a church, would be um, married folks and single folks really living life together as a family, right? So I think that's an application point for us as a church. But all of this is that God would, um, in the words of Hebrews, see marriage held up as honorable, right? That we would celebrate God's grace and his gift in and through marriage. And so as we jump into Ephesians 5, the first point we're going to look at this morning is God's goal for marriage, right? God's goal for marriage is to progressively restore the oneness of Eden, right? God's goal for marriage is to progressively, that's an important word, progressively restore the oneness of Eden. Now, I know it's early, but we're going to do a little theological heavy lifting, right? So Ephesians 5 is just jam-packed with theology. There's no way to get around it. So, you I mean, you kind of want to think about it this way. Ephesians 5 has a picture right? I mean, it's a snapshot of something, and there's also a reality that we live in each and every day, and we have to wrestle with all of that. But God's goal in marriage is to progressively restore the oneness of Eden. So I want to go back to the beginning, right? Uh, If you don't have a framework of the Bible, in the beginning it says that God created everything, right? And it was a world without sin and a world without death and without decay. It's in that world that he said everything was good. And the pinnacle of his creation was creating man, right? Not a gorilla. I mean, contrary to what happened this week, right? God made mankind. That was supposed to be funny, so you can laugh. (laughs) Sometimes, like, it just throws me off if you don't laugh. So courtesy laughs are appreciated, right? So mankind is the pinnacle, of God's creation. And he said everything was good, but there was one thing that wasn't good, and it was the fact that man was alone. And and in that, it says that it wasn't good that man was alone because there wasn't a helper that was made suitable for him. 
And really what was being communicated from the beginning of the Bible is that one single gender is incomplete to display the image of God to the world. So it takes man and woman both together to be able to do that. And we hear an echo of that in verse 31. Look at it with me. This is, this is what we're banking on. This is what God wants to do and restore in marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So that's God's goal for marriage. That does not only refer to sexual intimacy, which it does. It also refers to a oneness of mind and heart and purpose, right? God's goal for marriage is to progressively get us back to that place where we are naked and unashamed before one another and naked and unashamed before God. To build a kind of intimacy where marriage is a safe place for us to dwell, right? That's what God's goal for us is in and through marriage. And then it also gives us this picture. Look at verse 32. It says, This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the goal is inside of marriage to experience oneness, to erase the effects of sin and death and decay and to re connect with intimacy, and the picture is to be to the world of Christ's love for the church. Now, I was able to witness this firsthand as a, as a very young man when I was engaged. I'm so thankful for this experience. There was a man named Jack, and Jack had his wife, and she was battling Alzheimer's at the time, And they had a little mother-in-law suite that was behind their daughter's house. Um, And because of his constant care for his wife, um, the the place had become overgrown. Um, Some of the housework was neglected. And so myself, along with some other folks, went by just to serve and um, try to keep the place up a little bit. And, um, you know, up until that point, I was a young man. I, I didn't know anything that I could do for this guy. I mean, we could... You know, I could serve on the outside. And I just asked him in passing, hey, how can I pray for you? And it was at that moment, like, I mean, the presence of God filled that little mother-in-law suite. And he said, he said, just pray that I would fulfill my vows until the end. Right. So here he is, like near the end of his life or her life. And he's asking that he would be able to fulfill his vows. And he said, quite honestly, I mean, there's moments where she doesn't remember who I am. She acts in ways that I know are not like her, you know. And I'm, I'm confronted, like as a young man, just with the reality of what does it mean to endure? What does it mean to finish well, right? I mean, we all can take a picture from Hollywood of what does it look like to begin well. Well, this is a picture of what it means to end well, like walking together in intimacy and oneness. And, and, I, and his daughter, because we were growing to be friends, passed along this story to me. Um, she ended up dying the, the day after their, 
anniversary. And on the day of their anniversary, I mean, everybody was just praying that she wouldn't die um, on their anniversary. And he just got down on his knees by her bed and he just walked her through every aspect of their wedding. Like he said, this is what we did. And remember when we danced here and then they went to Hawaii on their honeymoon and he could recount you know, I think it was 50 years later. This, this is where we were. And remember when we went here and he just told the story, right? That is a picture of the kind of intimacy and oneness, right? That's, that's deeper than just companionship. And the only thing that can produce that kind of intimacy and that kind of oneness is the gospel of Jesus Christ, Right? It's very important for us to understand the reason that that oneness needs to be reestablished is because sin entered the picture, right? I mean, I told you Genesis 1, Genesis 2, God created everything that's good. But if you've been married for any amount of time, just witnessing, even observing marriages, you know that sin enters the picture, right? I mean, there's a moment when the honeymoon is over, right? I mean, there's a moment where there's a, a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of moment that happens in every marriage, right? I mean, it could be when you get home from your honeymoon and your husband uh, brings his comic book collection in. You knew he read comic books, but it ended up taking up the entire spare bedroom, right? It could be the, the time that your wife, for the first time, breaks down in front of you emotionally. Maybe up until that point, she was a very self-composed kind of person, all of those things are, are, are pictures of the brokenness that enters into marriage. But the good news in the midst of all the things that we bring into marriage is that there's more grace and mercy in Jesus than there is sin in us, right? And that's why this is a picture of Christ's love for the church, that there's no amount of brokenness that exists in our hearts or in our marriages that can actually derail God's plan for our marriage. And so we want to press into the reality, yes, we all fall short of God's glory, and yes, we all sin against our spouses, but the great news of the gospel is that there is more mercy in Christ. Listen to this from Tim Keller. This gives you a picture of what it means to endure. It says, when over the years someone has seen you at your worst and knows you with all your strengths and flaws, yet commits him or herself to you wholly, it is the consummate experience. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need in marriage more than anything. So, the great hope for our marriages comes in the fact that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And every time that as a married couple, you fix your gaze and you place your faith in Jesus Christ and allow his mercy to cover your sin, the oneness of Eden comes back into view, right? That's God's mercy. So God's will for you is not to primarily just function as business partners and to allow sin that exists in your marriage to remain. He actually wants to deal with it and he wants to cover it and he wants to eradicate it so that you can experience intimacy and oneness. 
That is his plan, and that is his goal, and that is what he's progressively doing through the death of Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you have and you are married, and you have ever been forgiven for something that you have intentionally done, you have tasted and seen the mercy of God through another person. And it is the greatest gift. Let us not take those things for granted. God is saying to you through your spouse, this is how merciful I am. Every time forgiveness is asked for, experienced, and applied. That is God's grace. All right. This brings us to point number two. Our only hope in marriage is a crucified and risen Savior. Right? This is what makes Christian marriage utterly unique, is the fact that we have hope to change. Right? That God's mercy is bigger than all of our mess. Our greatest hope, and this is, this is where I, I want to plead with you about marriage. Our greatest hope is not that you would have a date night. Our greatest hope is not that God would give you nine points so that you would be a better communicator, right? Communication is important, but that is not your hope. Your hope in your marriage is not that God would fix your spouse. Your hope in your marriage is that God gave up his son for your marriage so that what lives inside of you will not destroy your marriage. That is our only hope. And it's important to say that because it's very easy for all the books that major on marriage to all focus on technology. And if you do this, and if you communicate this way, you know what? I know how to communicate, and I know that it's important to take my wife on a date night, but you know what? There is a war that goes on inside of me each and every day that makes me not want to do that. And the only thing that can give me power to actually want to do those things is the cross of Jesus Christ. So it's not about us learning nine steps to a better marriage. It's about us running and fleeing to the place where mercy flows. That is Christian marriage in and of itself, right? That his mercy meets us at our point of need. Yes, there are things that are important to learn. Yes, there are skills to employ. But if they do not flow from a heart of the gospel, you are putting lipstick on a pig, right? We need mercy to cover our sin. This is another Tim Keller quote. I said this morning to the guy doing the slides, I could just pipe Tim Keller in. Um, He said this, I've heard someone say over and over, love shouldn't be this hard. It should come naturally. In response, I always say something like, why believe that? Why would someone who wants to play professional baseball say it shouldn't be so hard to hit a fastball? Would someone who wants to write the greatest American novel of her generation say it shouldn't be so hard to create believable characters and compelling narrative? The understandable retort is, but this is not baseball or literature. This is love. Love should just come naturally if two people are compatible, if they are truly soulmates. The Christian answer is no Two people are compatible, right? You have to believe that at the core of your soul. The sin that lives inside of each of us makes us not compatible. 
So that's the the bad news. But the good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can make us compatible. It's at work in us. And every time that grace is looked on and every time that grace is applied, you get to experience more and more of the freedom, right? That is the purpose of Ephesians 5, right? That God himself makes us compatible. He takes our failures and he triumphs over it with his grace. The truth of Ephesians 5 is that every marriage tells a story, right? It's either going to be of human independence and folly and rebellion and sin, or it will be a picture of the mercy and the grace of God triumphing over our sin, right? If God gives us the grace to endure till the end, the anthem could and should be not what a great husband, but what a savior, That's what we're shooting for. And all of this is because Jesus laid down his life for us. Which brings me to my final point. Marriage is about ministry, right? God's design that he gives us for roles inside of ministry is to do ministry, right, for our spouses and to the world. Now, This is the place where these sermons on Ephesians 5 usually go pretty wonky, right? This is where everybody brings their own experience, their own brokenness, their own story to the passage. And so there can be some controversy. Um, And just this week as I was praying about this passage, the fundamental reason that these roles are even questioned is because we tend to view them very selfishly, quite honestly. So, I mean, in this passage, it it has husbands that are called to love and lead and serve and lay down their lives, right? And, And if you view that call, not in the context of ministry to your spouse or ministry to the world, right? I mean... If you're a lazy person, I mean, it's just going to lead to passivity and just say, you know what, that sounds like too much work, like I don't want to do that. Or if you're a domineering kind of person and you view it selfishly, like you're going to say, well, I'm going to use that to my advantage and I'm going to get this woman to do whatever I want, right? That's viewing that passage selfishly. Um, and the same for women. I mean, in, in, in the call in this passage is women are called to follow and submit and um, to respect their husbands. And if you view that selfishly, right, all you're going to think about is like, all I'm doing is laying down my life. What is the point of all of this, right? But the point is, if you look at the whole context of Ephesians chapter 5, is that your role is not about you. Your role is about your spouse, and your role is about the glory of God being expressed in the world, right? So it's not about you. If we view it that it's about the other person, it helps give us a framework, and it honestly protects us from abusing the roles that God has given us. Now, I want to say this very clearly, very straightforward. All forms of abuse are abhorrent to God. Verbal abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. If that is your situation, come find me. Come find the elders. Get help. This Ephesians 5 sometimes has been a cover-up for people to live in abusive relationships. We don't believe that. We're not endorsing that. But I do want us to wrestle with, okay, because these aren't my words. These are God's words, right? They're authoritative. What do they actually mean for us? What does it mean for us to use the God-given roles that God has given us 
to do ministry for our spouse and for our world. Or, yeah, for the world, right? Marriage is, it's supposed to be the overflow of grace that we receive being poured out on the canvas of the life of our spouse and on, onto the world. We want to see God pour out grace on us so that we can give grace and mercy to our spouse and see them built up. That's the purpose of these roles. So it says, Husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wow. That's a big call. Right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This is a self-sacrificing kind of love that prefers the other person's needs to our own. Right? This is massive. It includes providing for your wife, and if you have a family, your family. That doesn't mean that spouses can't work. But what it does mean for husbands is that you bear your burden of the curse and you don't put it on your wife, right? It means that you take the responsibility to provide and serve your family seriously. So that's included in there. It means that, and this, this is where I want to, if I could have your attention. The bar for manhood in Arkansas and in Jonesboro, Arkansas, is like down here. It's on the floor. Like, it's almost non-existent. Arkansas and Jonesboro, in particular, are filled with boys with toys. I'm not going to lie to you, right? I mean, they have their toys and their hobbies, and that drives the, the whole thing of their family. And what Ephesians 5 has for us is a picture of self-emptying love to build up the other person, right? So we want to try to, the reason I do that is not to step on anybody's toes, but to say what an opportunity that we have in this area in particular to paint a picture of something better, right? We have a a chance to paint a picture through our marriages of Jesus' love for the church. So, we empty our lives and ourselves for our wives. And this is, this is the primary way that you can see leading your wife as ministry, right? It says, washing her with the word, or Jesus washing the church with the word to present her one day blameless and spotless and whole, right? That's the ministry that we have to our wives. And so this is, this is how you can do this very practically. Remind your wife of who she is in Jesus Christ because there is a world that's giving her a completely different message. It's saying her worth and her value is found in a number on a scale. The world is telling her her worth and her value are found in what she does. 
Her worth and her value are found in spinning a thousand plates at one time and trying to keep up with all the activities of other people, right? That's what the world is saying. And you have an opportunity as the leader of your home to wash your wife with the truth of this is who you are in Jesus Christ. You are loved. You are treasured. You are adored. You do not have to prove yourself, right? All of these things are gifts from God because the world is telling them something else. So ministry inside of marriage, using the God-given resources that you have to remind your spouse of who they are in Jesus Christ. That's the call for husbands. And then the flip side is for um, wives to submit to their husbands. Now, um, the best picture for this is Jesus. The Father sent Jesus into the world, and there was a a sort of glad followership, right? I mean, what this is a picture of is two people coming together to display to the world the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. And so a wife coming alongside of her husband, right? And that doesn't mean that you don't make suggestions. It doesn't mean that you don't lead out in some ways. But it means I want to help make us a success. I want to use all the gifts and resources that God has given me to see our family flourish and to see the gospel flourish outside our walls. And different women have different gifts and different abilities to do that. And it's very interesting in this passage, it says, for wives, it says husbands need to love their wives. It says wives need to respect their husbands. You ever wonder why it doesn't say wives love your husbands? Right? It's because there is this God-given need inside of men to be respected by their wives. It's been there since creation to say, you know what? I believe in you, right? I'm your biggest fan. And ladies, this is what I think it looks like, quite honestly. Give your husband and trust the Lord enough to let them fail, right? Because men, right, in this passive culture that we live in, men are made to lead. They are made to take risks. They are made to do things. And if you make your marriage a safe place where they're identity is not on the line if they fail. Like, they're going to try things for the glory of God, right? But if they feel like you're going to nitpick them if everything doesn't turn out and they don't have it all figured out, well, here's the thing, right? Husbands don't have it all figured out. I mean, you can look across the room, right? We, we don't hold the founts of all knowledge. But there is this real call to take steps of faith as we follow God. So, this is, this is what I would encourage you, right? There are mountain tops, ways that we fall short as husbands. But if you respect your husband in the glimmer of grace and encourage that glimmer of grace that you see, I promise your husband will become more respectable, right? If he, and that's a question you can ask your husband. Are you more aware of my disappointment or are you more aware of my respect and my encouragement, right? That's what it looks like played out on the ground. And all of this, when done under the context of the gaze and the beauty of Jesus Christ, walking with him and following him, forgiving and forgiving one another, all of those things become a picture to the world of the gospel. And I want to close with this quote. This is the Christian definition of love. 
Tim Keller says this once again. Within the Christian vision for marriage, here's what it means to fall in love, right? Not romantic comedy. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey that you're taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of this on earth, but now look at you. Each spouse should see the greatest thing that Jesus is doing in the life of their mate through the word, the gospel. Each spouse then should give him or herself to be a vehicle for that work and envision the day that you will stand together before God, seeing each other presented in spotless beauty and glory. Right? That is the hope of marriage, is that you... Fix your eyes not on today. That you believe with all of your heart God's promise for your spouse or your future spouse. That he will actually finish the good work that he started in them, right? What if we viewed our spouses through that lens, right? Not where they are right now, but what they will be one day when they stand before the king. When we can get those glimpses, and that's why Ephesians 5 is in the Bible. Because there are glimpses that we see. And when we fan those into flame, we tell the world a better story. We don't say that we're perfect, but we're saying this kind of love that endures and this kind of oneness is only possible because Jesus Christ laid down his life on a hill called Calvary. And now our marriage is evidence that he's ruling and reigning, not because we're perfect, but because his power overcomes our weakness. And that's the picture of Christian marriage. That's what we're longing for. And that's what we're asking God to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for marriage. Thank you for the ways that you've given us to live that out. Thank you for your mercy and your power that trumps all of our failure. I pray that you would give us real hope in these moments to be able to encounter you in your splendor and in your glory. I pray that you would fix our eyes not on what we see today, but what you're doing for that final day, and it would make all the difference. I pray for marriages that need restoration and healing that you would be present by your Holy Spirit and do that. I pray that we would humble ourselves before you and before one another and say, we need mercy here. I pray that the table would be something today that couples can do together that would reestablish the oneness of Eden and we would get to walk in the goodness of that. The only person that can do that is you through your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.